Malcolm Honline is with us from Jerusalem, which is always an extra added bonus and pleasure. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update from Jerusalem. Mr. Honline, tell us, how does Jerusalem look on this Friday afternoon? Unbelievably gorgeous. (laughs) And the weather is beautiful. We were sitting outside just now with people who are here for our mission, which begins on Sunday. A very intense uh, period of time for us. We just returned from the first part of the of the mission in uh, the in the Gulf area, and the uh, uh, but to come here and to see Jerusalem glorious. And thank God they're getting rain tomorrow and Sunday. That will is very necessary and essential, and will help even bring out the green and the beauty of the city even more. Yeah, I, I was told a big soaking is coming Shabbos and Sunday, so uh, make sure you have your umbrella. But yes, it's great news when we're able to report that type of weather forecast for Jerusalem and its surroundings. I, I don't know, you know, everybody wants to hear what's happening in Jerusalem regarding the uh, the scandal, quote-unquote, but then again, everybody wants to hear what you've been doing for the last couple of weeks because it's made news, and for a lot of people, uh, they find it hard to believe where you and the delegation were. So, all right, I'll, I'll toss it up, and let's start with that. Then we'll get to what's happening in the capital of Israel. Tell us about this journey, um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, the uniqueness of uh, embarking on it, and the reasons behind it, why this became the initial leg of the uh, Conference of Presidents' uh, mission to Israel. Okay, so every year the Conference of Presidents takes a, a large group of our leaders. This year we have the largest group ever, about 120 people. Uh, and But before we come to Israel, we try to visit a country where we can make a difference and we consult with our government, with Israel, with others, to think about where the issues are and where could we as an American Jewish community, not representing a government, representing ourselves, go and learn about an issue that is very important or issues and at the same time be able to help solidify ties with U.S., with Israel, or even trilateral relationships, uh, address particular issues. It could be MIAs. It could be many other issues that we uh, tried to speak about during uh, our trip. And um, we tried once before. I have been to the UAE. Uh, before, but we never had a large group, and certainly no, there's never been as large a group as we had in the UAA, Jewish group, and all week we had kosher food, we had an amazing effort by Ross Creel, who is a resident in Dubai, an Orthodox Jew, and um, brought in a mashkiach overseer from South Africa, from the Besden in South Africa, and the government went all out including converting one of the major restaurants in Dubai, overseeing the famous fountain where you have the dancing waters. Uh, worked on it half a day, 20 guys, koshering the whole place. Uh, there is a very small Jewish community, and it's a couple hundred people in, in basically in Dubai, but also some in Abu Dhabi. Is it a safe, are, is it a safe Jewish community? Are they safe? It there? is safe, absolutely. They... Uh, um, you know, it's not so much a public community, but it is safe. And what was interesting is how the leaders we met all talked about wanting to, and proud of the fact that Jews live there, wanting to um, increase the visibility. And in fact, in the new museum, the Louvre, they have there, based with the uh, Louvre in, in uh, France, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar project, I'm sure. Uh, we went through it. They have... Uh, you know, imported amazing things, primarily from the Louvre. 
but they have a major display, which is a, a, a Chumash, a Koran, and a, and a Bible, a Christian Bible. <laughs> and and they talk about, you know, the education, the other things they're engaged in in terms of tolerance. As a, and they have a minister of tolerance. They have a minister of happiness. And uh, they have, uh, seriously, uh, and when you have, you know, a lot of oil money, I guess you can't have happiness, but they are, less than 50% of the GDP today is, is oil. They've moved to, to increase education. There's an NYU campus, New York University campus that is spectacular, and the kids pay no tuition, no expenses, um, and there are a number of Jewish kids. And last Shabbos, they had a Shabbaton in Dubai from the NYU, and people from the NYU Hillel came there. And the former president of NYU was there, came to speak, and one of the students told me that she was uh, crying the whole Shabbat because it was so moving and so exciting. But I think overall, you know, we obviously want to see the relationship with Israel strengthened, but the common interests regarding Iran, the threat of Iran, the threat of Turkey, the threat of extremism, the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, the war in Yemen, the um, now this conflict with Qatar, uh, where it's not so much for us to take sides, but to understand and to try to hear the different perspectives. And you can only do that by seeing it firsthand. And this was true when we went to Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan, remote places, or Berlin or Frankfurt or, or London or Paris. Uh, each year we, we try to add to the knowledge of our leaders so when they make decisions and they talk about issues, they do it in an informed way. One of the great concerns and, about the, the Gulf states um, is that some of them, um, some unabashedly are sponsors of terrorism and you know, will tell you so and have good relations with Iran. The UAE, does anybody accuse them of either? Everybody accuses everybody in, uh, between each other and, and uh, um, from the outside. But UAE, um, uh, uh, by the way, Dahlan lives in the UAE. UAE has relationships with, and have votes, obviously, in support of the UN of the Palestinians, as do all the other countries. But they have also uh, a resident Israeli official who is uh, the representative to the UN agency, IRENA, which is the Renewable Energy Agency. And he lives quietly, but he lives in the country. Um, there we will see the test when the Expo 2020, which is going to be a major international undertaking in Dubai, to see that Israel, if Israel is invited officially and fully, um, they, uh, but there are increasing contacts between most of the countries and Israel uh, because of the common enemy, because they have so much to gain from Israel. Uh, you know, they, they, it's not something you would read in the papers, the news media coverage talks about occupied Jerusalem and reporting from occupied this or occupied that. Uh, but the the government itself talks about what they're doing in the mosques, in the internet, on the in every medium to try and remove the attraction of extremism, to teach tolerance, and respect of uh, different religions. What was the reaction in the UAE press to your visit? Uh, well, we did not uh, publicize it because of various reasons uh, of ours and theirs. Um, you know, we don't want to call attention. It's it's such a big group. That, uh, but they did take pictures. They have put out the pictures now. We took a, a photo with the um, uh, foreign minister, uh, ABZ, the, the brother of the crown prince, and with other um, um, ministers and, and uh, very high-ranking ones who, um, who allowed us to release the pictures and to have them put out.
there is coverage. There have been stories in various uh, papers, UAE and elsewhere, mentioning the trip. But because we didn't give out any reports, they were only describing the fact, not the substance. Yeah, I mean that, that was uh, it. Ended up being a subject of conversation here last week because uh, uh, articles were written while you were there. The um, you would have preferred if there would have been a complete media blackout, or it really made no difference. No, we did not want any coverage before we got there uh, until we were actually there and settled because they're very sensitive to it. And obviously it could evoke a response or protests or worse from certain elements who don't want to see people like us come there and and be public and have this kind of uh, relationship with this and many other countries. And and while you were doing the review, I just lost track of the days. You You were there for Shabbos or not? I was there for Shabbos uh, with two of my colleagues because we went to prepare, but the group itself came on Sunday. A few others came, you know, days before just to to relax before the conference right. began. But the bulk of them, the vast majority, left Motzei Shabbos late Saturday night and arrived Sunday evening, and we left from there Thursday and went via Jordan, the Amman, where we had meetings with the regent um, of, of Jordan, the brother of the king, who was uh, the king was out, so he was the acting king called the region, and we had a meeting with him before we then continued on the bus to Jerusalem. Um, isn't it unrealistic to think that you and this delegation could be in the UAE and not be carrying a message from Jerusalem? In other words, you sit in these meetings, and and as you said at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, it's an independent group. They're, you know, in, interests of the greater Jewish community and, and, and Jewish, you know, and, and Israel topics are obviously, uh, you know, priority, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're discussing some of the topics you've told us you brought up, it, it's difficult to believe that those are not direct messages that you're carrying from Jerusalem. Well, they're not direct messages. Look, we understand the issues. We, we obviously are on top of them year-round. And um, when we discussed the trip with, before we came here with a number of officials uh, of countries in the region and elsewhere to, so that we maximize the productiveness and also understand the context of the issues. So there are, our questions and our points, the points we raise, are most effective. Are there any Israeli officials frustrated by the fact that you went there? Frustrated. Yeah. Quite the opposite. They're, they're delighted by right. that. Right. So, and that's only because you brought along their agenda, so to speak. If you would, if you would have gone and brought no. up. That, no. They believe that it's important that we open these doors and that, you know, sometimes Israel does not have access to places that we do have access to because of, you know, the political ramifications and they do it quietly. This is seen as a message in that regard as well. Obviously, people don't disconnect us from from Israel, but the uh, it's not because we brought messages. Uh, we are, are raising issues, very complicated, and I have to say the group raised amazing questions. Very much impressed the people we we met with, and the um, and it's very much Israel recognizes that. Uh, this is very much in their interest that all the bridges that we build to countries, especially those that can't publicly associate with Israel, uh, benefit ultimately them. And whether we can increase trade, we can increase communication, get better understanding. Uh, they ask us questions about things that happen in Israel and elsewhere, and we have a chance to 
tell them of our concerns, what's going on with in the in Syria, uh, which concerns them as well. And the more you highlight the common concerns, the more they see what they had today. But they, I would say, it is very different than a few years ago, and even different than a year ago. That much more, uh, it's much more highlighted that the common foes that the two countries um, uh, face, as well as some of the common benefits they could derive. And they, of course, want to see a solution to the Palestinian issue. They believe the Arab police initiative is still a, a good basis, but they, uh, I think they are pretty skeptical right now about what could happen. And they don't put the onus just on Israel. They're pretty balanced in that regard. Uh, on the uh, Jordan stop, uh, did the acting uh, leader of Jordan uh, express an opinion regarding President Trump's declaration of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? Uh, of course, and uh, it's something you hear in many countries. Uh, I don't remember whether uh, who raised, if anyone raised it in uh, in Jordan, in um, the, the UAE per se, but obviously it is an issue, and uh, they raised concern about the reaction to it, uh, he, they did acknowledge that he did not preclude this as an issue. He didn't do anything, but he talked about, they talk about the reaction in the Palestine, amongst the Palestinians in the street, etc., which is the reaction we hear most places. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com on the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning, Malcolm Honline is in Jerusalem. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Have you seen the prime minister yet? No, I just got here last night, and I have uh, that, not that, seen him yet. That will be, we will be seen. That's why I, I will be seen. Right, he left it, the country. It, oh, he left. He went. He's in, in, I think, in Berlin, and I will be seeing him. And he's going to be addressing the full conference on Wednesday. Did he leave because the uh, media pressure is a little bit too much since the uh, recommendation by Israeli police? No, this was planned before, but um, I think it's a good respite for him when he can get out of the country. <laughs> How badly would you... As you know, that is uh, Israelis love playing this game. <laughs> How badly would you love to be the Attorney General of Israel right now? Well, I have a great deal of respect for him, uh, and his own personal story is a remarkable one. Uh, I think he's a man of great integrity, and I think it can be very confident that uh, he will do the right thing. But, you know, he has a lot of time. He has, I think, seven months before he has to reach a decision. I don't know that it'll take all that time, but as he said today, he's not. he won't be reluctant from doing the right thing if it's necessary or called for. He... Um, uh, and it depends what charges are actually brought. So the prime minister now doesn't have to do anything, doesn't have to step down, he doesn't have to do anything else because he's got, uh, uh, you know, he, he's not indicted and certainly not convicted, and there's dispute over whether those things, but he's under increasing political pressure, you know, from people calling for him to step down or step aside or you know, using this as a chance to score political points. And they already have polls, you know, about who the better successor is. Uh, and the, the bulk of the people still don't pick a successor, uh, somebody as an alternative. Uh, although, Gilman uh, Sahar looks like a head on the Likud party, and Bennett scored very well in the leadership. But well, well, is this pro- I think right is, now the, there's, is, no, there's no person, single person. Is this process going to increase the visibility and the profile of Yair Lapid? Well, it could, because he's certainly one of 
one of the people who would put himself in running, but most feel that right now the, the focus will be on the Likud. And mm-hmm. any internal decisions they have to make, elections are scheduled anyway for I think in October 19, in the 2019. Um, but I think there's a lot of expectation that it could come earlier. So the Attorney General has at least half a year, if he wants that much time, as you indicated, to, to, uh, to make this decision. Uh, well, he has to explore the facts. He, you know, this is only a recommendation from the police. And right. A lot of things. And also, he, he's, they're very careful because they can't bring a case that they lose. Because it destroys their credibility, right? So and that has happened in the past. You know, police recommendations led to, you know, uh, trials that or, or judgments that did not support the police assumptions. So if they go ahead and if they go ahead with this, if the attorney general feels feels the case is strong enough, so to speak, then he's in real trouble. I mean, as you just indicated, they're they're likely wouldn't, wouldn't uh, bring the charges against him if they were not very confident they would win. If it goes ahead, right. And the police also wouldn't bring charges unless they thought that they had substantial evidence. Um, Mimi has been very outspoken against the uh, police commissioner, uh, who's also an observant Jew, um, and, the you know, questioning the whole validity of the process of the investigation. But I think that's a natural reaction. Uh, we'll have to see. You, you, be patient. you have no hunch about this or you wouldn't share your hunch about this? Well, first of all, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I certainly don't know Israeli law well enough. And you don't know the details. You know, bribery is a very serious uh, charge. Uh, some of the other charges are less serious. They could drop that aspect of it, which would mean that the nature of the overall uh, charges, they could drop one case. You know, they did drop. Uh, there were many more cases, and this is only the charges are only coming in two of the cases in 1,000 and 2,000. The numbers of the files. Um, well, that's so, the that's the bribery in the newspaper case, right? But not the submarine and some of the other cases that right. have been talked about that people thought were even more serious. Yeah, that's what I thought. They I did I, not have substantiation <laughs> for it. I always thought the submarine case was so much more serious than the other two. And with the newspaper one, you could really make the argument that he was set up. I mean, if you look at the details of how things went down, I, I don't even know if you could blame him fully for the for for the, for the way things progressed. But whatever. Well, it's not a question of, you know, we'll have to leave that to the courts to decide yeah, I think, in the long run. I guess. Are you are you planning on having the group present him with a gift on Wednesday? Because if so, please be careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no comment. But, uh, <laughs> Malcolm Schlepp. We always give him a gift. He has a whole collection of our gifts, but they don't meet the price the level. I think that anybody will think this is corruption. Are you schlepping a snow globe from the UAA, UAE airport for him? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> no, no cigars or champagne. No, that's for sure. Those items, I guarantee you, you're not going to present. Can you imagine the visual for that? My God. Uh, well, I, I, I'm not saying that... Um, that you're encouraging it or not just gives me a good opportunity to remind everybody that Monday there is a rally at the Isaiah Wall, 44th Street and 1st Avenue. Mahmoud Abbas is scheduled to speak at the United Nations. What What is happening at the U.N.? Is this simply uh, is he simply traveling the United States and like any head of state, he's being invited to speak there? Is there a formal uh, ceremony or program taking place? What's happening on Monday? Uh, I don't know. I, I didn't know that he was speaking there, but uh, he is invited there periodically. It's not the first time, and um, it's not one of the usual Palestine days, so there could be any one of the U.N. agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an invitation extended to him by the Security Council, and that's what this might be for him to, to address them on the situation, and he wants to talk about the 
decision by President Trump on Jerusalem. Right. So uh, I would anticipate that that will be uh, the subject that obviously comes up in almost all discussions. Um, there is more appreciation that the administration seems to pay attention to the Middle East, uh, but they... Um, uh, you know, there's there's frustration about it. On both sides, they always try to make it equal. But uh, I would say that whereas you used to hear criticism of Israel alone, you hear now much more criticism of the PA. Certainly, what the situation is in Gaza, the waste of all the money that they gave, they're more they're demanding more accountability and uh, wanting him to sit down at the table and to negotiate. Right. And they they I mean, obviously, they're critical of the things that Israel does. They're, and of the what President Trump did, but they many of them I think realize that in fact he did take an issue off the table. He didn't say that he eliminated as a final status issue. He tried to diffuse part of it by his declaration about the embassy, right. and it should not have evoked except for political reasons. Yeah, well, I'm in full agreement with that. All right, uh, before I get yelled at for spending all this time before getting to what most people consider the most important thing to discuss this morning, tell us. About last weekend, the drone, the attack, the ejected uh, airmen from Israel. What could you tell us about this episode that took place? Look, we've, it's been building up, and I've talked about it here for a long time. The war in the north, uh, the predicted war, the prophylactic measures that Israel's been taking along the border, the buildup by the Hezbollah of all these missiles and placing them in homes all along the as their southern border, the northern border of Israel, the uh, attempts by Iran, the presence of Soleimani and Raisi uh, in, on the Lebanon border with Israel, the attempts to penetrate on the Golan, the the uh, eighty thousand troops that Iran has in in Syria, in addition to Hezbollah, in addition to the, their own. I mean, they don't like to put their own soldiers in harm's way, so they get all these recruits from Afghanistan and everywhere else, Iraq, um, to fight and to die uh, because the reaction at home when they bring back body bags is not good. So what we saw was a, and the, and the question is who initiated it. Originally, people thought it was an SA-4, SA-5 or SA-6 uh, missile, which is locally controlled by the Syrian government. In fact, now we believe it's an S-200, which is a much more advanced system that the Russians provided. And the question was, did the Russians have any role in it? Did they, because parts and fragments from it were found in the Golan, in the communities, the people living there, on the not on the Israeli side, on the Syrian side, actually collected the parts and turned it over to Israel. And uh, so they were able to identify those things. There were many missiles fired, so it could be a combination uh, and whether there was human error or something else uh, uh, involved, you know, that will take a while to find out. And the Arabs are obviously celebrating it. It's a mistake. You know, the U.S. loses planes in similar circumstances. Russia does. Turkey does. Iran does. Um, but the, the they are trying to exploit it and say this is a turning point. We now have the Zionists on the run. I would, If I were them, I would not test this theory. Um <laughs> This, the, you know, Israel knocked out half of the air defense system of Syria in that strike. Wow. They could have taken the whole thing out. And remember, they're they're somewhat restricted because they don't want to hit Russian targets. They, they fired this from a Russian a base where there is a large Russian presence. And uh, you saw that, that uh, Putin right away came out and called for calm on both sides and to de-escalate it. He did not attack Israel, although there's reports that he had a furious phone call, but that's only a report from uh, so far. 
uh, what we see is, is in the public uh, domain that the um, efforts to, to keep red lines about where Israel does and doesn't go. But the uh, when you take into account the full uh, picture of what's going on in Lebanon, what's going on in Syria, the fact you have 29 foreign bases, the fact that you know the Iran is is uh, constantly escalating its presence, its aggressiveness there and throughout the region, that the Iraqi participation and presence in a lot of this. So, you know, it, it's so complex, and people try to boil it down into a simple picture of this one attacked, that one didn't attack, you know, what what really happened. Here, Israel's sovereignty was violated, clearly, with the drone. It was um, it was knocked out, and now, and we believe that this drone was, was uh, based on one that Iran had captured, and then they did the reverse technology, building one based on it, on the one they captured. And Israel was obviously had to take it out. They were able to monitor it from where it was fired. So they saw the launch. They saw the whole flight pattern. And that was a Russian. And that's that's a Russian-controlled base. Where was, where was, no, a base with Russian presence. Mm-hmm. It's near Palmyra, which we have discussed. I told you once that the inscriptions in Palmyra right. were, were in Hebrew. Right. Uh, so this is a base not far from there, in which there is a, a strong Russian presence. And uh, they were taken aback by the degree to which Israel's technology could pinpoint sites, hit uh, back at exactly the launching point to be able to do the targeted uh, strikes on their uh, air defense system. Believe me, it was very technologically very impressive. Boy, what it takes to protect the residents of Israel, huh? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable that this little country can do all this and uh, with all the high tech and everything else that they're doing and defending themselves and busy fighting each other politically, that thank God the IDF is there and they, they have made remarkable achievements they're facing uh, real challenges because you have uh, a large presence. You have, you know, you just shoot enough missiles at one time. Some are bound to penetrate. You can't get every one of them yeah. with Iron Dome, with Patreon, with anything else. So Israel has to be ready to move preemptively, meaning uh, in regard to the missiles that are, are, are in southern Lebanon, and this year no restrictions this time to the... Um, uh, hitting Lebanese targets that they might not have hit in the past because today Hezbollah is part of the government of Lebanon. Um, so in, in terms of last weekend's incident, as they were trying to do on the Sunday talk shows, you know, figure out who who's to blame when it comes to Iran, Syria, and Russia, the overwhelming majority of that goes to Iran, correct? I mean, it's the, they, get, they get the highest percentage. Yeah. <laughs> they get the highest percentage. Um, and, and when you describe the, uh, the, the weaponry, the missiles, mid-range missiles, whatever they are, that are being held in southern Lebanon and in Syria, you, you can say, parenthetically, I'll say with confidence, that Israel knows where all of those locations are, and if need be, they could take them all out. I would say they know where most are, but they're in houses. They're in individual houses. They have a, a dining room, a living room, a bedroom, and a missile room. Mm-hmm. And I guess they get paid or don't have a choice. Israel knows where a lot of it is. Israel monitors it closely, but you can't know where everything is. And if you know, it takes seconds for something loaded on the back of a truck for them to open the roof and launch the missile. However they do it, and when you have 110, 120, 150,000 missiles there, and they have, you know, a factory now building better guidance systems so they can hit 
with greater accuracy. All of these things are relevant to to what Israel has to consider and how it um, what it can tolerate. What it why, and that's why they don't allow more sophisticated message, um, uh, material weapons to go from Syria to to Lebanon, wherever they can prevent it. Was the Secretary of State already in the Middle East when this happened, or he he was there afterwards? No, he came right afterwards. Uh, uh, he's been here several times, but this latest trip, I think, started afterwards. And you mentioned he was in the UAE. And you mentioned the Putin reaction. Did was there a statement uh, in the United Nations? Was there a condemnation of the Iranian activity last weekend in the UN? Oh yeah, right. No, there was no condemnation. As I said, Putin, I think, tried to do an even-handed response. Look, he has vast, he has vast interest in both places. He has big infrastructure in Syria today for him, is a naval base, an air force base, but. So Ambassador Haley was the only one to bring up this topic at the United Nations. No, I'm sure there was condemnation of Israel right. for striking. <laughs> Meaning the condemnation of Iran. She was likely the only one who brought it up in the United Nations. Well, actually, we heard you know comments from some Europeans, more dark targeting the missile program and um, Iran's more aggressive stance. France this week, Macron made some strong statements about the nuclear program. So... I think that the um, um, but you know, there is a growing frustration, but you see Turkey, it's a whole separate stream of threat of re- the reaction, their involvement in Syria, what they're doing, which has come under condemnation, um, the, the, the army, the Syrian forces, um, and the Syrian government could also is assumed to have played a role or part of the coalition that put the missiles up. Yeah, well, understood. All being done with their blessing. Uh, by the way, I have to, um, I, I, I have to make a, a as big a deal as I can about this because I don't think people are reacting. Um, certainly not the way I would like. We discussed the whole Poland situation, right? The Poland law with the recognition of uh, Polish responsibility during the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. And they they've essentially tried to change the story a bit. Maybe you would say even stronger than a bit, right? And I think it's really, really important. For every generation listening uh, to understand how easily they are getting away with this, how easily they literally are changing history and are trying to alter things. And, you know, just with the stroke of a pen, so to speak. And, and I think that, you know, for those who wonder how things drastically change or over a period of time, slowly but drastically change, uh, you know, in different parts of the world and, you know, in history and, and, and could be during present times. I think it's a really important point to make to our children and grandchildren that, you know, you have people out there who are deniers and on top of that are ready to just rewrite the history books for their convenience. It is a, a major issue that people who tend to dismiss the, as crackpots, people engage in Holocaust denial, even in revisionism and even in this kind of thing of modification or refusals, because the, the, their benefit would stand with telling the truth, because there were many Poles who saved Jews, there were many Poles who engaged in collaboration and even sometimes on their own in, in acts of uh, violence against Jews. These are facts, and, and um, that they don't want the uh, camps called Polish camps, but rather German camps in Poland, yeah. you know, that's, you, you can say that, that's a fact, but, but the effort now goes beyond it, now threatening Shrita, now threatening other things, not acceptable. And 
Many people are reviewing the relationship and what we do. By the way, I want to say one other thing that I think will give your audience something for Shabbos to think about. That is the former chief of staff of Iran has a solution. He knows how this whole thing with Israel happened. And he said it's because lizards that have been trained by Israel, he said that this week on a national broadcast, lizards trained by Israel, they have a way to um, detect an atomic sense, and they are tracking Iran's nuclear program. <laughs> and they are responsible for this. So when you see a lizard, know that he's a possible agent of Israel. And just the, uh, and unfortunately, and, and further, more, more unfortunately, is that he probably had thousands, if not more, who were believing him as he spoke these words. Of course. It was on, it was repeated, it was published in the papers. It's unbelievable, but true. Uh, I got to go back to the Poland thing one last time. Um, will this, will this stop the, uh, uh, the tours to Poland? Will this stop the March of the Living trip? Will this uh, will will this finally prove that those who've said years ago that we should not be supporting the Polish economy it would, probably is a good idea, or you don't think much will be altered? I think that the, the, it will cause a review. People will re, be rethinking it. I don't think that you can punish the children who signed up for the March of the Living for this year by not going. Uh, there may be different emphasis. They may be use it as an educational opportunity. Right, always a positive, right? There's always something out there. Uh, are you back in the U.S. next uh, Friday? No. Whoa. I'm away. Another week. Again, Jerusalem? In Jerusalem. All right. So we'll, Bezrat Hashem will have you on then, correct? God willing. And you uh, you be careful what you give the prime minister, but certainly uh, certainly give him a... Uh, I'll give him your regard. Exactly. A little pep talk. A little pep yeah. talk that he's responsible for the safety and security of the people of Israel, and as I would say, for Jews around the world. But I, but the truth is, I think he gets that. I think he takes that role very seriously. So, I think so, too. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is in Jerusalem for Shabbos. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday mornings, 740 Eastern time here at JM in the AM.